Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Welcome everyone to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. We are thrilled to host an episode today with Gary Mendel, the founder of Shatterproof. Welcome Gary to our podcast. Arden, thank you. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. Diana, nice to see you. I'm going to share a little bit about your background, Gary, because I think it's important for the audience to know. Um, so Gary Mandel is the founder and CEO of Shatterproof. It's a nonprofit, a national one, focused on reversing the course of addiction, the addiction crisis in America. Talk about an important and large mission. After losing his son, Brian, to addiction in 2011, Gary founded Shatterproof to spare other families the tragedy he has suffered. Since founding Shatterproof in 2012, Gary's been a mainstay in the advocacy arena, trying to find solutions and creating solutions that will create more access to treatment for opioid and substance abuse disorders. I think a particularly interesting initiative that he's working on is the creation of the Shatterproof National Principles of Care, which helps to guide providers, payers, and patients to quality treatment. You know, we know at O'Connor Professional Group, it can be very difficult to figure out which therapist, psychiatrist, treatment center to send a loved one to. And so I think this project is of particular interest, not only to us, but to other patients. We know that you advocate for state and federal policy changes, and you recently launched a national strategy and call to action to address stigma related to opioid and substance use disorders. So thank you for joining us. And perhaps Gary, you can start out by telling us a little bit about your journey and the experience you had as a family with your son, Brian. Sure, Arden, thank you again. Um, for me, I was, I was not in the healthcare space nor nonprofit. Um, I was building my business and building one of the larger hotel operating owner and operator, operating companies in the country and raising my family in a small town in Connecticut. And my older son, Brian, um, started struggling with addiction and he struggled over eight years, eight different treatment programs. And he tried his hardest, but tragically, uh, on October 20th, 2011, I was woken up in the middle of the night and told that my son had just died. He was 25 years old and he hadn't used a substance in 13 months. And equally tragic, it wasn't just addiction that took Brian's life. It was the feeling of shame he had every morning when he opened his eyes, a feeling like an outcast all day long that caused him to wake up that morning, research suicide notes, uh, write a note of his own, light a candle, and take his own life alone. And obviously it doesn't get much worse for a father or a parent. And for a couple months, I just really struggled with two questions. What could, have I, what could I have done differently as a father? 
and what could be done to spare other families of the tragedy my family had suffered. So I owned my own business. I had the flexibility of taking some time off. So in the first quarter of 2012, I spent three months traveling the country looking for an answer to those two questions. And after three months of traveling the country, meeting with policymakers and advocates and legislators and researchers, I learned so much I had not known when Brian was alive. But one thing rose above everything. I learned that our federal government in the decades prior to my son dying had provided grants of tens of billions of dollars to researchers all across the country. And those researchers had successfully used that funding and created wonderful bodies of knowledge. Knowledge that had proven through randomly controlled trials that if we do A, B, and C in our communities, in our healthcare system, many of our loved ones would never use drugs and become addicted. And if we, use, and if we did X, Y, Z in treatment programs, those in treatment would do significantly better on par with anyone else being treated for any other chronic illness. And if we do D, E, and F, the shame and the stigma and the isolation that my son felt and 20, other million, 20 million other Americans would be significantly reduced if not eliminated. But it destroyed me because I learned that all this information existed and was sitting in peer-reviewed medical journals and hardly any of it was being implemented and used. It was just so tragic. But as a father, that destroyed me. But as a businessman, I saw an opportunity, an opportunity to create an organization that would be run like a business and simply implement all the research that, that already existed. And running some predictive models no, that was not going to end addiction. But if we simply implemented what we knew today, we could cut it in half and save 100,000 lives each and every year. And that was the formation of Shadowproof with a vision to prevent and treat addiction based on the science, just like any other disease, without any shame, isolation, stigma, or judgment. That's not needed to be associated with this. So, thank you, Gary. That was incredibly clear and powerful for me, and I'm sure for our listeners. But I wonder, going back, you must be one of those people at gatherings at the grocery store because you are visible in this space. What's your first line of advice for parents who are concerned about their kids using substances? Sure. When families call me, I listen to the circumstances of their situation. I, based on that, I refer them to a professional who's accredited in what they're looking for, whether it's a interventionist, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a psychiatrist, whether it's an addiction doctor. <clears throat> and that's part one. And then part two, I say, look, I'm referring you to professional because I'm not, an, I'm not credentialed in that space. But here's what I can tell you that I feel very comfortable giving you advice on. 
Based on the story that you just told me, which is fairly common, most often I will say to the parent, based on what you just told me, I can probably project that you're a wonderful parent, that you tell your son or daughter or loved one often how much you love them. You probably also tell them you're proud, you're, that you'll support them and help them in any way that you can. But you may not be telling them how proud you are of them. Mm. And you're probably not empathizing. And that was me. Mm -hmm. Brian, I love you often, all the time. We had a great relationship. Brian, if you relapse, don't. I will support you and help you get into the right treatment. I am here for you. And we had a great relationship. Often how much I love him. And I look back on the letters and there was times when I said how proud I was of him. But I never said, and I have to live with this, I never said, this must be hard for you. It empathized. It was always, Brian, it's okay. Next time, hopefully you can try a little harder or maybe take what you've learned from the last treatment program and do better. But I never said, this must be hard for you. Which is all, all of us would say if someone had cancer. If you had a 20 year old who had cancer lying in bed where all their friends were going through school and graduating, going on to college, people would be visiting that, that child who's laying in bed with cancer and say, this must be hard for you with all your friends graduating high school and going on to college, and you're not. And I'm so proud of you for fighting through a difficult disease. So Mr. XYZ or Mrs. XYZ, when you get off the phone with me, either walk down the hall if it's possible or make a phone call or get, on a, get in the car and go visit or get on an airplane and hug your son and daughter and tell them how proud you are of them for fighting a difficult disease, hug them and empathize. Mm -hmm. That's what I tell parents. Yeah. And they refer them to a professional for help. It's beautiful. Thank you, Gary. I think it's such an important message for parents. And I, I can appreciate your emotions. I feel them similarly, um, partially because as a country, I think we think because there's so much publication about the opioid crisis and substance abuse that stigma is gone. And it, it isn't for just the reasons you're articulating. You know, we still see so many families who justifiably are frustrated by the choices that they view their loved one making that aren't great choices. But if we think about this as a disease, it reframes blame and, and um, assuming that someone lacks discipline and sort of preconceived notions that parents and other loved ones bring to the conversation around addiction into something that's much more empathetic. And so I really appreciate you sharing it because I think both for parents who have loved ones who are the loved ones are still alive, but also for people who have lost loved ones in this space, the more you can remember that person and remember your interactions with them in a way that always projected love, I think the more at peace family members remain. So I think it's a great point. Absolutely, and Arne, if I could add to that a little bit, because you talked about people understanding this is a disease, yes. But let me add to that. In a recent survey, national survey, 
about half of Americans responded that those with addiction or substance use disorder, it's a chronic illness, it's not their fault. The other half said it is their fault, they're not trying hard enough. I'm here to express to you and your listeners that that is less relevant because 80% in that same survey of Americans, which included many who said it was a chronic illness, said, I'm not comfortable associating with someone addicted as a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, or marrying into my family. Again, many of the people who said that also said it was a chronic illness. So it's not about, it's less about this is a chronic illness. It's more about this is a treatable chronic illness. Because I can guarantee you that there is probably less than a handful of the 20 million Americans who have a substance use disorder that have ever read that survey. But I can also guarantee you that most, if not all, of those 20 million Americans feel that survey, feel that if someone knows they're addicted, they may not want to be their friend, coworker, neighbor, marrying into their family, associated with them in any way. So if you're addicted, are you going to go to treatment? Mm. You're going to avoid it at any cost because you don't want anybody to know. And let's say, let's just say that your parents or your family convinces you to go to treatment. You're going to try to keep it as quiet as possible. And then are you, let's just say they convince you, how are you going to find a treatment program? Mm -hmm. Well, 25% of the primary care doctors in this country responded that they don't want to seek, excuse me, they don't want to treat those addicted to opioids because they think it might hurt their practice. So you're going to be able to find a primary care doctor that can refer you to treatment. Will insurance pay for it the same way that other chronic illnesses? Probably it's moving in, that, in the right direction, but maybe not. But will you be able to find a treatment program that's offering protocols that are based on research? Very unlikely in today's society, although we are really improving that at Shatterproof with our principles of care and our quality measurement system. But I'll tell you the most important part. Let's say that Johnny, either at a party, took Vicodin and became addicted, or hurt his knee playing soccer and was prescribed 30 pills and the doctor didn't tell him they were dangerous and became addicted, or whatever. And Johnny is convinced by his parents to go to treatment, goes to treatment, finds a provider, paid for properly, finds a provider in the country that is following all evidence-based science, research-based practices, gets the best treatment in the country. Johnny still enters a society after treatment where most people don't want to be his friend, coworker, neighbor, or date their daughter or son. How does Johnny feel? Mm. And most Johnnies will internalize it. Not only do they realize that most people don't want anything to do with them, they start to believe it. Yeah. They start to believe that I am not worthy of being someone's neighbor. I am not worthy of being someone's friend. And they feel worthless. 
as did my son. But it's not about my son anymore. It's about the 20 million Americans living with a substance use disorder today, no different than any chronic illness, feeling ashamed and isolated and low self-esteem, worthless. We're just not right and we can fix it and we will fix it. So I have a question related to that. Um, just to take your example. So if we think about Johnny, does the picture change if Johnny comes from a wealthy family? Is he somehow prevented from feeling the stigma attached to this? And, and how in your journey did access to financial resources help or hinder the process with Brian? Great question. Um, absolutely a huge difference whether Johnny is uh, has lower if Johnny Johnny or his parents are on lower income levels or different different looks differently than the rest of us absolutely than, than, than me for example or you uh, absolutely I had all the resources in the world I could pay for anything in fact I can't even tell you what insurance covered or not because I didn't even look mm -hmm. at it I just got Brian the best treatment I could find him. But I had no information. I had no idea how to find a treatment program that was doing the right things or the wrong things. No idea. It was Google. It was word of mouth. It was friends. I had no idea that, that there were medications available to treat someone who was addicted to opioids until his second to last treatment program. No idea that even existed. He was prescribed that medication in his seventh program and in the eighth program in two days, they didn't believe in one day, they told him we don't believe in medication and started taking him off it. And then he died. Um, but I had no idea. I was listening to the eighth treatment program that told me these medications were no good, that they were dangerous. When I now know that's just the opposite, that this is recommended by the Surgeon General, HHS, every federal agency, CDC, etc. So I'm a little off topic. Let me come back to your question. I had all the resources in the world and I was lost. And I know now that my son got horrible treatment, felt stigmatized. Frankly, not knowing what I know now, I can't believe he didn't take his life five years earlier, knowing what I know now. And now looking at the data 10 years later, now that I'm into this and I understand the data as well as anybody in the country, for those who have means in certain states where we've built out a quality measurement system based on the principles of care, and people know about it and go there, they can find treatment that's offering, doing the right things. But the reduction in stigma is still, stigma is still there and we're just starting to reduce it. We're reducing it significantly right now in the state of Pennsylvania. The results are off the charts great. And we just got, we just got agreement to move forward in Kentucky and Colorado. And we're in conversations with many other states. And we're now gonna be also piloting a program in, in, in a hosp two hospital systems in Pennsylvania, and we're talking to a hospital system in Connecticut. So we're, we're building it out. But now let's go to your question related to those of color or those who have less means. It's far worse. Of color, 
I'll just give you one stat. I can go on and on with stats. Buprenorphine, a medication that treats someone addicted to opioids, you are 30 times more likely to prescribe to, to be prescribed and act, have access to buprenorphine if you were white versus you were black. 30 times. And I can go on and on about the racial disparities that make it that much worse for those of color or those without means. But we are, we are working on that right now in chat, at Shatterproof in a variety of different ways. And if I can just make one more amendment and I'll stop. In your opening introduction to us, you talked about he is doing this, he is doing this, he is doing It's not me. Mm -hmm. It was me when we started, yes. But we have a team of 40 people right now and we have hundreds of thousands of, of those donating to us, volunteering for us, advocating for us, hundreds of thousands growing every day. That's the power of Shatterproof right now, working together. So there are a lot of organizations tackling addiction or substance use disorders. What about Shatterproof makes it different and why did you start it in that way? Sure, we are run like a business. We have, everything we do is, I value donor money as a fiduciary. And if we are gonna take donor money, we're gonna ensure we get results with a return on investment. So everything we do is measured just like running a business. And we have metrics annually, monthly, daily, all based on impact. That's number one. Number two is we're less about services, not no services, but we're more about changing the system. My wife is a therapist and she helps 15 to 20 clients a week. That's wonderful, wonderful. And she has wonderful stories about people she's helping. Shatterproof is some of that. And we're getting those stories in every week now. We call them mission moments. When someone calls us or emails us or writes us or walks up to me in an event and tells me how we've saved their son or daughter or a family member or walks up to somebody else at Shatterproof, not just me. But we're really about, more about though, changing the system. So it's less about us helping a family we want to, we're changing the system. So the system changes the family. It's not about giving a scholarship so someone can go to treatment. It's more about changing the entire payment system in this country. So we're not giving a scholarship, but everyone in this country who has a substance order can have their treatment paid for just like any other chronic illness without any shame or stigma. Going to a, to a provider, just like they're going to, to a provider for cancer or heart, heart disease or diabetes or asthma, and they're getting treatment that's taught in medical school that's based on science and continuing education, changing the system. That's our thrust. But while we're doing it, we are helping people every day. But the thrust is changing the system. So we help people just not today, but we're helping our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren. The systems we're changing now and policies and how this is being brought into the healthcare system will change it forever. I love hearing 
the big vision. And I want to end on a question of hope. When you think about recovery, substance abuse treatment in 10 years from now, what would be your dream to see where the field has gone? Sure. Let me amend that slide. That's not my dream. This will happen. We are doing it. I love um, it. That every family raising children will know enough, know as much about this disease that they do about diabetes, heart disease, asthma, getting a cold, getting the flu, as much as they know about any other disease, which is not a lot, but it's enough. But if when they go to their primary care doctor, their primary care doctor then knows as much about this disease as they know other, about other diseases. Enough to give advice, enough to handle a mild case, enough to know that you need a specialist and here's three specialists I can refer you to without any shame or judgment or stigma. And then, so that person, so number one, the family knows enough information to prevent it if possible. And the healthcare system does. The families in our community and our healthcare system knows enough to treat people with science research-based care, just like any other disease. Those living with it without, will live without any shame or judgment or low self-esteem, just like someone with any other disease. That's the vision of Shatterproof, and that's what we're accomplishing. And to do so in a way that it's not reliant upon us, that the system has changed, so it just happens in perpetuity, and we're just continuing to react to new things that come along in the environment. It's a beautiful way to end this podcast. Yes, thank you thank for you. not only your vision of hope and your clarity around what needs to happen, but for your vulnerability and willingness to yes. talk about it. Really appreciate it. It's absolutely my pleasure. And one closing thought, which is, this is a not, and I said it before and I'll say it again, this is not about me. This is, yes, I started it, but this is about bringing together millions of Americans within, within one organization and empowering them to create change. So any of your listeners who would like to learn about how they may get want to get involved in a way that is comfortable for them, and there's a variety of ways to do so, we'd love your help. Because I can't do this on my own. But what I can do is offer opportunities for people to join with us. And together, there's no if. Together, this is doable. We've studied our social movements. We know exactly how to do this. And it's about bringing together millions of Americans within one organization. And together, we will do this. So thank you. Thank you both. Thank you again, Gary. And thank you to our listeners of another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you're inclined to do so, please like us or send a positive review on your podcast listening platform of choice. And we hope you'll tune in to our next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.